Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I give him a lot of credit. He's like, Jay, he said, you ought to start your own podcast, talk about Western hunting. And I just jumped in. Uh, you know, I think I'm at 350 episodes now. Who's Deer Hunting is all about glassing. And I've learned that if I can go high and the higher I can get, the better it's going to be. And you're looking and looking and looking and, you know, panic starts setting in. And like, you know, a minute and a half later, all of a sudden you see an ear flick where you see them just turn their head and they were standing there the whole time. Who's Deer are actually thin skin. And uh, they, they will actually conserve energy. They'll actually stand in the sun and try and warm their body. If you're hunting during a, a full moon or a bright moon, you're going to see less deer. You're best off during a full moon to glass from 11 to 2 o'clock. I'm in it to try and help people. Um, I, it's definitely not a show where I'm trying to showcase what I'm doing or you know my merits or my credits. I'm as excited now as I was when I started. Like, I'm probably even more into it. This is Jay Scott of the Jay Scott Outdoors podcast, and you're listening to episode 41 of Living Country in the City. Y'all ready for your dose of flyover state spirit? Straight from the concrete jungle? Well, put down your latte and pull on your boots. It's time for Living Country in the City. Hey, y'all. Welcome to episode 41 of Living Country in the City. You know, I'm super excited because I've got just a crazy info-packed episode in store for y'all. Uh, in December, I am planning on heading out to Arizona to chase some uh, cows or coos deer. So to maximize my chances of success, I wanted to make sure I had as much info as possible. Couldn't think of anyone better to talk to about uh, cows deer hunting than Jay Scott of the Jay Scott Outdoor Show. Honestly, y'all, if you want uh, just an info-packed podcast... Y'all need to check out uh, the Jay Scott Outdoor Show. It's absolutely fantastic. If you haven't downloaded it, I'd really recommend you do. Jay is a super smart guy with a lot of info to share. I'm really excited to talk to him, so let's get going. Jay, thank you so much for hopping on the show with me today. For sure, Sam. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, anytime I can talk coos deer, um, I'm pumped. So uh, before we, we get into coos deer, uh, I'd love it if you could just give me 
a little bit of your background, how you got started kind of in the outdoors and hunting. How I got started, um, my dad actually ran a ranch in Colorado uh, and took me on my first deer hunt when I was 15. And I was for a mule deer. And, but I was always a kid that my grandma got me a Field and Stream magazine and Outdoor Life when I was in kindergarten and first and second and third grade. And um, she would always get that magazine and have it at her house. And I would always read the magazine from cover to cover. And I would actually, I was the kid that actually like in the corner of the magazine, you know, like pulled the corner down and had little tabs and I kept all the magazines and I had, you know, I, I read Tapley's tips and I, I always was trying to figure out how to catch fish. And at that point being young, I really didn't have anybody to take me hunting uh, or fishing that much. And, um, so I was always a kid that just wanted to be in the outdoors really, really bad. And I wanted to hunt and fish. And I was the kid that, you know, had the little Zebco 33 fishing, you know, uh, you know, spinning type rod on the shore and <laughs> watch the guy go by in the boat and, you know, pull up the stringer of fish when they're going to, and just, you know, I was just craving to be one, you know, in that boat. And, and, uh, same with hunting, you know, in, you know, from rabbits to, to squirrels, to deer, to anything, to even think that I would someday be a, you know, professional elk guide or bighorn sheep or coos deer. I mean, it was, it was uh, just a dream for me. And so that's how I got my start. And, uh, I had some friends kind of in grade school, uh, Jason and Dave Meldy, their dad, Mark Meldy, uh, took me under, under their wing and took me on hunting trips. And that's kind of where it all started. And, um, then once I got my own wheels when I was 16 and able to drive myself and, and, you know, that's when it kind of all started where I had a little bit of freedom to actually do the things that I really, really wanted to do. So you, you went from, uh, this kid reading the field, your grandma's field and streams and then, uh, you know, a little bit older heading out with your dad and then, uh, some friends, uh, for hunting. So what took you then from, uh, from this young man hunting now to, uh, to running your own podcast and, and guiding and really as a professional outdoorsman? Yeah. You know, um, really in Arizona with our tag structure, it's, it's, uh, sometimes hard to get tags for, for all the big game species. And really, uh, uh, when I was in college, I got my guides license. And the reason I got it is because I actually wanted to spend more time out there elk hunting. Originally it was elk hunting. And, um, I knew that if I got my guides license, that would give me an opportunity to, uh, justify being out there in the woods and, <laughs> and, and, you know, enjoying what I loved. And, um, you know, I think I got my guide's license in 1996, uh, something like that. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think that it's been over 20 years now. Um, but really to just give me a longer season and allow me to be out there more is the reason I got my guide's license. And then it just kind of blossomed from there. I, I loved it. I'm the type of personality that if I jump into it, I jump, you know, both feet, just head first, just dive into it. And, um, you know, up until I think last year, I think I spent, you know, 20 years in a row of taking the entire month of September off, <laughs> uh, in the, elk, in the elk woods, videoing elk, uh, photographing elk, calling elk, uh, guiding elk and what have you. And so for me, it's, it's not a job at all. It's what I love. It's, it's, it's everything I think about is hunting and fishing. And, you know, I run a successful real estate business as well, but, um, you know, the, the reality is, everything, uh, in my thought process usually stems around trying to catch or, 
or uh, photograph or, you know, harvest something. You know, I feel like that's kind of as far as I've learned, the sign of a real true hunter right there is, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the one pulling the trigger, but just any excuse to be out on that hunt, be out in the woods, be, you know, participating in the in the life of of those animals we all love so much. Uh, I feel like that's really the true sign of a hunter. You know, and I would agree with that. And the older I get, I'm 44 now, the older I get every season that goes by, it seems like I actually want to shoot something myself less. Uh, but I get more and more enjoyment out of either my hunting partner uh, or, or clients or, or what have you, just um, being with them and enjoying the, the uh, camaraderie, the friendship and, and what have you of the hunt uh, and enjoying God's creation. I love being out there. I love the animals. Uh, but I would say, I, I don't think I've lost my killer instinct, so to speak. Uh, but I definitely, uh, for myself in, in being someone that, you know, has to pull the trigger or has to harvest, I come home on so many hunts that are personal hunts that, uh, uh, I don't fill a tag and I have, you know, just as good a time, uh, not doing that. And, you know, some look at that as, you know, not being successful and, and that's fine. Uh, you know, it, you know, in, in doing this for as long as I have, I've kind of been on all spectrums of, you know, having to kill something or, or not and uh, kind of enjoy where I'm at now where I, I truly do trophy hunt. Uh, I am selective on what I shoot uh, and, you know, at times catch criticism for being a trophy hunter. And it's something that I will never, uh, I shouldn't say never, never say never, but it's something that, that I, I don't think I will back down from because it's just how I go. If, if, if I don't see a buck that I feel like is a mature buck, uh, or bull or ram or whatever it may be, like I can go home without, without shooting one. It's, it, you know, the end result does not justify if I had a great hunt or not. Well, you know, and that's one of those funny things is we talk about conservation and that's an important part of it is. I've I've had conversations with friends who either don't really understand hunting or might be kind of leaning against hunting and and I've talked to them and I say, well, you know, the, these animals have lived long, full lives. You know, it's not a cow in a pen. And they're like, well, how do you know? I'm like, well, you can tell an older animal by uh, especially a male, typically by the size of its rack and various other things. And and I'm like, you can't you can't want us to chase older, you know, animals that have lived these full lives and then also be against trophy hunting. It it doesn't work that way. That's kind of how you, how you typically pick those animals out. Yeah. Well, I, I can't really speak for anyone else. I can only speak for the way I do it, but um, you know, I definitely like to shoot, you know, when it comes down to bucks, whether it be a coos buck or mule deer or what have you, um, you know, I like to shoot something maybe that I haven't already shot, you know, got kickers off the, you know, G2s, G3s, you know, maybe got a drop time. Maybe he's wider than any buck I've shot. Maybe he's heavier. Maybe he's taller. Maybe he's only a big three by three, but he's, you know, got trash off both sides or, um, you know, when it comes down to coos deer, I love, you know, wide bucks. I love narrow bucks. I love bucks. And, and that's one thing I really like about coos deer is every rack is unique and, I'm the one that's pulling the trigger. So I'm, you know, the trophies in the eye of the beholder. And, you know, I can't speak for guys that go out and they just want to, sh you know, just harvest an animal. That's great. You know, that's, that's what they're out there for. And I try not to judge others. I try and just um, do what I enjoy and, and do what I like. And uh, I definitely like going down to the end of the hunt, trying to push myself either 
physically and mentally, uh, you know, and or both just trying to harvest the best animal that I can. And sometimes, and a lot of times, and most of the time it comes down to the end of the hunt and I don't shoot something. And, um, you know, I, I think there's a time in every hunter's career or, or their progress where they need to go through the period of actually killing and, and harvesting and, and figuring out how to do it. And they have to have that killer instinct. And then it comes down to, you know, uh, do you get to a point where, you know, you've killed enough stuff and you're just being selective. And that's kind of where I'm at with, with my own personal hunting career. And, and, uh, yeah, I enjoy it. I, I love it. And, uh, I, I feel like if I was just going out to try and kill a deer and being done every time on the first day, it just wouldn't be as fun. So, um, you know, I always like to keep it fun and yeah, it's, it's uh, a great passion, uh, hunting and fishing of mine for sure. So, and you've taken that passion and you, uh, are the host of the J Scott outdoors podcast. How long have you been doing the podcast? You know, I want to say the podcast started in February of 2015. Uh, my good friends, uh, Giannis Patelis and Steven Ranello over at the meat eater. Uh, they actually sent me a copy of their pilot episode and, um, Giannis, uh, I give him a lot of credit. He's like, Jay, he said, you ought to start your own podcast. Talk about Western hunting. He's, he's like, you have quite a bit of experience and you've, you know, been a lot of places and, you know, hunted a lot, a lot of things and you know, a lot of people. And, um, it got me thinking at that point, I really didn't even know what a podcast was. And, (laughs) and, uh, obviously, obviously those guys have taken their podcast and they've gone mainstream. They've got, you know, the Netflix, uh, their, their TV show is just a, Steven, he does a phenomenal uh, job as host for the TV show. And Giannis is the producer and, you know, their podcast, may ultimately be end up being bigger than their TV show. But anyway, they encouraged me and I started, uh, I was up and running in two weeks. Uh, I had, had purchased the, you know, all the different things to, to get started. And I just jumped in. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think I'm at 350 episodes now. And, uh, you know, I, it's just the amount of, um, you know, view, the, the listenership, the support, the loyalty from my listeners is amazing. I get, you know, 15 to 20, whether it's email or direct messages every single day from, from listeners that either listen to something in the podcast and it encouraged them or, you know, gave them, uh, skills from one of the guests that I've had on to, you know, help their own hunting and fishing. And, um, to me, that's extremely rewarding. And, uh, you know, it's, my wife always laughs because she's like, you've been doing a podcast for 20 years. I've had to sit and listen to you on the phone <laughs> talking to, you know, this buddy, that buddy, or, or people that just call me out of the blue and introduce themselves. And I, I'm, I'm in it to try and help people. Um, I, it's definitely not a show where I'm trying to showcase what I'm doing or, you know, my merits or my credits. Um, it, it's about, you know, talking to my guests, trying to pick information out of their brain that I'm curious about, which will make me a better hunter, uh, which then I think translates to, uh, you know, the podcast being fairly informational. Uh, and, and my podcast isn't, you know, it, it's not one of these big entertaining, you know, podcasts where people are laughing and, and, and what have you. It's more of, you know, a lot of information and, um, uh, yeah, you know, maybe to a fault, um, just trying to get as much information out there to the, my listeners as I can. Well, you know, and we kind of talked about this earlier. I definite, uh, I came across your podcast kind of early, uh, as I was, I was kind of learning about hunting and stuff like that. And I will admit it was definitely a little intimidating at first because, because 
you release a lot of content. You know, it's, I mean, there's, I, I noticed there's some days, you know, you'll release two or three or four episodes, kind of if you're talking about rut reports or, or breaking down units. Um, it's definitely a lot of content. And now that I understand things a little bit more, um, I really appreciate all of that because there's always something, you know, okay, I may not be hunting that specific unit, but I, I may be looking at hunting close by, or I may not be looking at hunting that specific animal in the unit, but there's still definitely tidbits I could get for, you know, if you're talking about elk in a unit, but I was hunting mule deer, there's definitely still things that could apply and, and crossovers that you could find in there. And like you said, it's just, there's so much info packed into each of these episodes. And I, I think that's needed. You know, the, I also enjoy listening to the podcast that, you know, they're funny stories and they're encouraging, but you know, I, I, I try and listen to podcasts because I want to learn. I want to get info. I want to grow as a hunter. And I think yours uh, definitely provides a lot of great information for folks. So, well, I appreciate that. So getting into, I guess our topic of the day, um, you know, I, uh, I really got into hunting, uh, when I started learning about, well, I shouldn't say we got into hunting, but started getting in, interested in backcountry hunting when I started learning about elk. Uh, and so honestly, a lot of my research and uh, study has been focused on, on chasing elk. Um, but I, you know, through actually watching, uh, uh listening to, the meat eater podcast and watching the show a lot. Um, I started learning about, uh, coos deer or cow steer, as I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss a little bit. Um, started learning more about them and just, I kind of became obsessed with them as well. They're just such a fascinating species. And so maybe, uh, maybe you might be able to give us a little introduction of just about the cow steer and, kind of talk a little bit about what they are, what makes them different and unique. For sure. I mean, when you're talking about coos deer now, I'm going to say coos and it's C-O-U-E-S is how you spell it. Uh, The actual pronunciation, you are correct. It was named after a guy named Elliot Cows who actually designated these deer and classified these deer, uh, Elliot Cows. Uh, Most of all my buddies uh, in Arizona say coos. I do know a handful of people that say cows. Either one is fine. I don't really get into coos or cows. And, you know, there's, I mean, there are people that just like refuse to say coos or refuse to say cows. I'm, I'm neither one of those. Um, the, the coos deer are an unbelievable animal. Uh, they are the cousins of, you know, the eastern deer or even the Texans deer, uh, any of the white-tailed deer. Uh, they are an unbelievable dainty, small animal, you know, mature bucks. You know, sometimes they'll be in that 100, 110 pound range uh, with a lot of bucks, uh, you know, maybe never even making it to 100 pounds. Uh, they're not very tall, uh, but they're, they're an unbelievable wary animal. It seems like uh, mountain lions and coyotes uh, are, are constantly after these deer. And so of, of a lot of the animals that I hunt, they are the most wary of all animals. They are the most alert and most keen animals. And so uh, from their, you know, small size to their, you know, we say lots of times that, you know, when they disappear, they've gone underground and they've 
you know, dug a tunnel and they're just gone. <laughs> uh, that's just the nature of a coos deer. Um, and then, then you take the characteristics of those coos deer and, you know, with them being small, you know, these big coos deer that we like to target, you know, the big racked coos deer, big antlers, you know, when you get a big buck, they look really, really big on those small deer's head. And, <laughs> you know, there's people out there I hear, they're like, oh, why would you like to ch- chase those jackrabbit with horns? And, you know, and that's fine. Uh, if you've never experienced it, you know, you can, you can say that all you want. But I have very rarely, you know, we, we guide in Sonora, Mexico every year. This is, I believe, my 20th season uh, coming up here. Uh, and I've very rarely ever taken someone that didn't just really leave with a great respect for those deer. And, and um, you know, they're, they're just really pretty deer. Um, and some of the things that I've seen them do and the aggressiveness, you know, that they, you know, they chase, chase does with reckless abandon and, and, you know, they fight other bucks, you know, to the death and they're just an awesome animal. I would encourage anybody out there that hasn't been on a coos deer hunt, whether it's in, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, or, uh, Sonora, Mexico, uh, even Chihuahua for that matter, uh, you know, Northern Mexico. I would highly encourage you to go on a cooster hunt because they are an unbelievable animal. And, you know, it's also cool because sometimes you've got overlapping uh, mule deer in the same country. And, you know, specifically in Arizona, you can come and hunt in, in January with your, with your bow and arrow right during the peak of the rut. I mean, the first through the 31st of January, uh, you get 31 days. And I mean, there's not many animals across this country where you get a full month to hunt them in the peak of the rut. Mm-hmm. Granted, you've got a stick and string, but I mean, these bucks are losing their mind chasing does and chasing other bucks and, you know, making scrapes and, and, and running those scrape lines and, and what have you. I mean, it, it gives you a really good opportunity to for one, see a lot of animals, you know, feel like you're in the middle of the hunt and, if you're so fortunate to find and target a big buck and, you know, be able to hunt one specific buck, which is, we love doing that. Um, you know, it's just one of those things in life that you should experience as a hunter and, um, beautiful time of year. Uh, if you're, if you're speaking about January, uh, you know, the rut in Arizona, normally, you know, you're, you're, you've got good weather and that's one of the things guys that want to come on my Mexico darn nice Mexico cooster hunts, you know, it's beautiful weather. Uh, typically, you know, your lows are in the thirties, uh, you know, with your highs in the high sixties, sometimes even the early seventies, but it cools down overnight and, you know, you just get to watch them rutting around and, and, um, you know, if you're hunting them in August when they're in velvet, that's, I don't really spend a lot of time with the cooster. Typically I'm ramping up for elk season. Uh, but that's also another time that you can come over the counter in Arizona and hunt, uh, for, for a couple of weeks, I think it's two or three weeks, uh, and, you know, get to chase them around in the velvet. Now, granted, they're a little bit more nocturnal. Uh, they, they don't, um, they're not as visible as they are in January, but just, just an unbelievable deer. I can't say enough about them. Uh, they've, they've really had my heart for over 20 years now. And I'm, I'm ever bit as fired up about this coming January season, uh, down in Sonora, Mexico, as, as, as any other season we we've, uh, we've had. Well, you know, that's one of the the things that really drew me to chasing them is that, you know, we talked a, a little bit, you mentioned earlier that, you know, Arizona has some amazing 
opportunities for hunting, but it can pretty often be difficult to get a tag or you're spending a lot of years building up points to get tags. Um, and you know, I know I've just started recently building up points, but one of the things, uh, that I love about these winter hunts for the, for the mule deer and the, and the cow steer is that it doesn't affect your points, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So you can only harvest one buck per calendar year, but, but you can, uh, hunt your archery tag. And if you don't fill that tag, and if you were to draw a, uh, a, a rifle tag, you wouldn't be able to use the rifle tag, but it does not affect your points in any way. Meaning you could just apply for points or apply and not draw in Arizona, but buy an archery tag every year over the counter and hunt and it doesn't affect your points. So I highly encourage people to one, gather points in as many states as you can, but specifically in Arizona, uh, you know, unfortunately they don't have a drawing for two steer and mule deer. It's just deer. And so you accumulate points for every year that you don't draw. But what I can tell you is you can come out and buy a a tag over the counter and hunt in some of the the best, Arizona has some of the best public land hunting of, of any state in the country because we have, uh, I believe it's uh, 15, I think there's 85% of Arizona is public land. The other 15 is private and you've got some Indian reservations and some other things like that, but 85% of our state is public land. And so, you know, whether you're talking down south, you know, south of Tucson, Arizona, or in the central Arizona units, you know, either south of Flag or around Payson, you, you basically have a free run at all the national forest, uh, you know, state ground and BLM ground that, that we have. And, you know, I would say 99% of the hunting that, that for coos deer in Arizona is all on public ground. So all these Arizona bucks that you see getting harvested, most, I would say 99% of them are on public ground. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand is, you know, they can be from Michigan or from wherever and bring their travel trailer out or for that matter, fly out and stay in a hotel and be hunting coos deer, mule deer with a tag in their pocket and it doesn't affect their points. If they shoot a deer, yes, if they drew a rifle tag, uh, you know, for that calendar year, they couldn't harvest because you can only shoot one, but it does not affect your points in any way. No, I definitely love that because especially, like you said, you know, for someone like me that's just starting out um, and wants to have every opportunity to hunt that they can, but, you know, maybe, well, there's two things, you know, maybe it's it's difficult to get out, uh, you know, because of vacation time, or maybe it's just you don't have many points, so you're not drawing a whole lot. Um, it gives a lot of great year-round opportunities and you know, for someone like me that's already interested in shooting with a stick and string, you know, I'm I'm really passionate about bow hunting. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely definitely not at all a, a handicap for me because that's I was already already planning on giving myself some trouble with that anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, back to what I was saying. I mean, it's a phenomenal time. The weather is usually very very good compared to a lot of places in in the rest of the country. Uh, you know, granted we, we can have some cold days and what have you, but cold is relative. I mean, I'm, I, when it gets below 60, I'm wearing the biggest parka you've ever seen. I mean, I'm a desert rat. So, <laughs> uh, but, but like I said, you can hunt 
two steer or a mule deer. So it's a, just an antler deer tag. You can shoot either or, and you can apply ahead of time and get a javelina for the same unit that you're going to go hunt over the counter deer and have a javelina tag in your pocket. And, and you can bring your shotgun and shoot, you know, three species of quail. You can shoot the Mern's quail, the scale, scale quail and the, and the, um, uh, the gambles, I'm sorry, I just had a <laughs> brain melt there, but uh, the gambles, the scalies, or or the merns, and you can, you know, in the afternoon during the day, you can have lunch and go shoot quail. So it, it's an incredible time. It's such an amazing opportunity, and the thing is, is you're not really losing out, because if you're applying or you're buying points in Arizona, you've already had to purchase that hunting license. That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, you're spending 160 bucks as a non-resident to gain that point. So you already have spent the money for the license. And then I don't know what the, the over-the-counter deer tag is, but it's not much. Uh, I want to say it's like 150 bucks or I don't even know what it is. But it's, it's, it's nominal. Uh, it's, it's a nominal amount of money for the, uh, for, for the enjoyment that you can get out of it. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Well, you know, and for me, it's more about extending my season and, and really – finding a nice low pressure hunt that I can, you know, just in, go enjoy and have fun. Um, but for a lot, a lot of people, especially if you're new getting into hunting, it really doesn't get too much better than this unless you get lucky with a draw. Because like you said, you have so many different opportunities for different, different types of animal, you know, the, uh, you've got mule deer, you've got the, the cow steer, you've, got javelina and you've got these uh the dove and so there's so many opportunities for different types of animal that you well, i mean you can predator call you can shoot with that hunting license mm-hmm. you can shoot coyotes you can shoot bobcat you can shoot fox i mean you can bring your your hand call or your electronic call i mean you can shoot you know like we said you can shoot quail but let, let's let's take a step back i mean you have an opportunity to come see the biggest bucks of the year in January and glass up the, the deer, the most vulnerable. They are, they are out in the open. They are chasing does. Uh, you know, they are uh, as exposed as a coos deer is going to get. And you're able to, you know, be on a ridge glassing and, and find the biggest deer in Arizona are going to come out in January and you can hunt them for 31 days. I mean, it, it's a great opportunity. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from how I understand it, the I think the the late season hunts you can also get a tag in December. I believe there are some units from about the tenth or twelfth of it's usually around the middle of December through the December thirty first. So this it's 2017 now. So coming up in December, there are a bunch of units that you can hunt with your bow as well. Now, once December 31st and it rolls into January 1st, you have to get the new license for the 2018 season. But yes, I mean, in reality, if you wanted to come over from California, you could come over and hunt for basically 45 or a little bit more days in a row and be able to watch the coos deer rut from beginning to end uh, from, from the early stage of, you know, bachelor groups of bucks being together to them kind of starting to spar to them running, you know, their scrape lines to them breaking apart and, um, you know, actively pursuing does through the month of January. And then as it tapers off, you know, right towards the end and 
sometimes, you know, I get reports of guys seeing bucks really running, you know, on into February. So uh, that is true that the, the season in a bunch of units does start uh, at, at the end of December. I highly encourage people, if you're going to come over, uh, great, if that's the time when you can come over. But if you can come in January around, I would say, anywhere from about the 5th to the 25th of January in any unit in Arizona that has Tuesday, that's going to be your, in my mind, best opportunity to see the most activity, to see the most bucks. And in Arizona, the further north you are, if you're up around Flagstaff or up, up around um, Payson, the further north you are, the, typically they're going to rut sooner up there. If you're in southern Arizona, you know, Tucson and below, typically the rut is going to be a later, you know, say more into that 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th and on in January. So keep that in mind. You know, if you're hunting central Arizona, it's going to be more, you know, after Christmas to the first 15 days of January. And if you're hunting in southern Arizona, it's going to be more, you know, say the 10th through the 31st through the end of the month. Okay. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So now, as you're getting in, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I know you're a, a big proponent of Go Hunt, correct? Yeah, I've been fortunate. Go Hunt has been the title sponsor of my podcast since I started. About five episodes in, Lorenzo Sartini contacted me, and and uh, we we've had a great uh, partnership and relationship since then. Uh, but they're an incredible uh, tool for any Western hunter that wants to research. Uh, you know, all the different units in states, uh, and you can go on and you can become a part of the insider, uh, program and basically have access to all the Western states and you got maps and, uh, you've got all the statistics and, and draws and harvest data and what have you. So it's, it's a great resource for sure. So, you know, I, I go in through go hunt and, you know, I've, I've personally kind of selected a couple of units I'm interested in. I won't, won't mention them on the air now, but, um, you know, well, you're, I'm happy to answer if you've got any questions about units, you know, feel free. I definitely, we might, uh, we might have a quick discussion after I, uh, press the stop <laughs> recording button here, but, uh, <laughs> Hey, I like to, I like to spread info, but only so much. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Um, but you know, say I've, uh, you know, I've picked out some units I'm interested in, you know, next step typically for me is at least I know with, you know, the elk hunting, I go in, I start looking at Google Earth and identifying interesting spots that look, uh, you know, look like they would be holding elk. You know, I kind of know what to look for with elk and it's, you know, it's those north facing slopes, looking for water, looking for bedding areas. And, and I'm sure there's similarities uh, with what you're looking for geographically with, with these uh, cow steer, but, uh, I'm, I'm curious kind of what, what would I be looking for as I'm doing my initial, maybe scouting online before trying to get boots on the ground? What I would look for is places for me, it's all about glassing. It's all about finding those ridges and finding those, those pointed, uh, peaks 
that, that you can get up on and you can look 360 degrees. The reason I like 360 degree looks is because at any given time of the day, you can be glassing deer. If it's right during the middle of the day, I'm turned and I'm looking with the fa- my face into the sun and I'm looking into the shade. Uh, in the mornings, I'm typically scanning very, very, excuse me, back to the, when I'm looking into the shade, I'm going slow, I'm going methodical, I'm trying to pick out those deer that are bedded. Uh, conversely, uh, in the mornings, in the evenings, uh, I'm glassing fast and I'm turned and I'm looking at, you know, sometimes more of the sunny side of the hills and the more open parts where I'm catching deer moving through. And so I really like to find cone knobs. I like to find knobs that I can look in every direction by just basically swiveling on my butt and, and changing direction. The other thing is I like those uh, big ridges where I can walk a long ridge and glass off both sides because it gives you the ability, like I said, to look into the thick and look into uh, the open. Typically in Arizona, our south-facing slopes are going to be more of that yellow grass, more open. You look on the, the um, north-facing slopes, you're going to get some of that thicker, uh, you know, whether it be oak or mesquite or ocotillo or what have you. Um, but for sure, it, to me, coos deer hunting is all about glassing. And that's one thing. I, I'm a glasser. I love glassing. I love looking at big country. Um, and I've learned that if I can go high uh, and the higher I can get, the better it's going to be. I typically find the highest points that I can. Not necessarily some giant mountain out in the middle of nowhere and it's got no other mountains, but any little cone knob or peak where I can see into a bunch of country, that's what I'm going to pick. So when I look at a topo map, I'm trying to find either those cone peak points and I'm trying to find long ridge lines. And in, you know, Southern Arizona, uh, it, you know, historically there's tons of those big, long finger ridges that, you know, you could walk for a mile or even two and it's, you know, fairly steep. But by just moving very little, bouncing from side to side and making a day out of it, you know, bouncing back and forth from the, either the sunny side or the shady side, back and forth, back and forth, uh, covering as much country with my eyes and my binoculars as I can, trying to find deer, establish a pattern, see what they're doing, watch them bed down, and then try and make your move uh, as an archer. Uh, a lot of times you have to do a lot of observing before you can be successful in stalking. But I think it all stems from finding those places on the map where, you know, you can see a lot of country, uh, and then actually getting boots on the ground. Uh, you know, I use Google earth a lot and sometimes you get up on those points and you're like, Nope, I got to check this one off the list. It's just not right. It's not looking at, it's too far away. It's too close. Doesn't look into the country like I want. And, but you know, if I get to a new area, I'm, you know, and this goes for elk, this goes for mule, this goes for Tuesday, pretty much anything. I'm trying to get up high where I give myself the best vantage uh, to to see with my eyes. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure if I'm allowed to give this tip away. Uh, I learned it from a buddy of mine, um, but I'm I'm about to totally give away uh, his little Google Earth secret. Um, we kind of found this little trick where you know a lot of the time if you're just searching in Google Earth and, and, you know, it's not super clear all the time where those little ridges are if you're in some really flat country. Um, he started, uh, you just create like a big hexagon and you attach it to the ground and you start moving it slowly up the elevation. Um, or sorry, 
you shoot it way up in the sky and you start moving it slowly down and you see those spots where the land just breaks through that that hexagon layer um and it's and it's a really quick visual way for you to find some of those glassing points um and then then you can kind of dig in a little bit deeper and look at the topo map and see see how how good they actually look but uh it was a little trick he showed me and i i i may get a dirty look from him now that i just gave it away but that's all right he'll he'll get o- he'll get <laughs> over it but it, you know there's also a tool where you can look at the ground view so when you find one you pull it down and put you know the ground level view mm-hmm. and it, you can actually pull it down and and sit yourself on that point or on that ridge and you get the actual virtual what you're looking at so you get the real view of if you go to that point and then you can spin it around 360 like i'm talking and I work on Google Earth all the time, and um, I've found it to be very effective. I'm also very efficient with a topo map. But, you know, to me, Google Earth is an amazing tool. And if you're not using it, you're really missing out. You know, it's free. Um, You know, we have so many great resources um, right at our fingertips that a lot of guys, you know, 30 years ago, you know, never had. Um, So I would highly encourage guys to definitely use stuff like Google Earth. But, you know, back to your question of like, you know, you, for coos deer, it's all about, you have to be able to find them with your eyes in order to be effective, uh, you know, year after year after year on bucks. Plus it's really fun to get up and see, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 deer and even more in a, in a day or, or even a morning, uh, because you've picked out a good spot and, you know, that's part of working country over my partner, uh, guiding partner, Dar, Dar Colburn and I'm a hunting partner. We just love picking apart country. We love learning new country. Um, and you know, we, we pick out these knobs, he glasses off one, I glass off another and we, you know, get together at, at midday and, you know, what'd you see, you know, well, I saw this, this, and this, and okay, okay, this knob kind of stunk. Let's go over here and check a new knob out. And, um, that's one thing, you know, over the counter, deer hunting or even mule deer hunting for that matter i mean you get to be in some amazing country and you get to go you know hike with a flashlight uh in the dark and and i love that i love putting on a a headlamp and and just walking through and getting up to a knob and watching the sun come up and um, being up there in the dark and just watching everything unfold it's just it's awesome well you know you mentioned kind of the key of like you said finding of being successful with the coos deers being able to glass them up and see them. And, you know, I think one, one thing we didn't really talk about is, is there, you, you kind of mentioned they just disappear on you. And I mean, that has a lot to do with their coloring. Cause don't they just, I mean, they pretty much match the, the earth identically. They've kind of evolved in that way where their coloring is just makes them invisible until they're running away from you. Yeah. I mean, they're, Every year it happens where I'm I'm with a client uh, and even with, with some guys that are really experienced cooster hunters and, you know, found some deer and your buddy comes over and you're, you know, sitting next to them and, and you look in your binos and they're on a tripod in a stationary position and you just had them centered in your binos and then you start trying to explain and then you look back in your binos and you can't find the deer <laughs> and you're looking and looking and looking and, you know, panic starts setting in and like, you know, a minute and a half later, all of a sudden you see an ear flick where you see them just turn their head and they were standing there the whole time. And that's for me, one of the the things that intrigues me so much about coos deer is, 
they do blend in amazingly well with with the landscape and they're just a, they're just an awesome deer i mean it uh, and not that a mule deer doesn't but a mule deer is a bigger animal mule deer typically doesn't blend in near as well but these coos deer you know sometimes the grass is over their back and um you know you're looking sometimes mile two miles away and even further with some of these big binoculars we use i mean it, it's amazing a sunny hillside the deer standing completely still facing you or or butt to you and you look away for a second you look back and you think he's gone and then you realize he's standing right there he's never even moved <laughs> um those th- those are animals that i want to hunt it's funny it's one of those things i've i've kind of described that exact thing to people and i'm like oh man they're just so fascinating like and and they sit there and and for them that makes it so unappealing to hunt them. They're like, oh my gosh, that sounds awful. And you just get this teeny little deer out of it. I'm like, well, yeah, but that's what makes it cool for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, yeah. And I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, a lot of people will never get uh, lots of things that we do and, and we won't get lots of things that they do. And, you know, I, I'm kind of over trying to, you know, try and I want to help everybody out there and help them to be the best hunter or fisherman that they can be. But I'm kind of one of those that, you know, if they don't get it, that's, you know, that's their deal. And I'm sorry that they don't get it. Most everyone that comes with me and spends a day with me, uh, especially looking at coos deer, they leave saying, wow, that was an experience I'll never forget. And so, you know, if if you can't, explain that or convey that to people in my mind they're missing out and i just move on and and uh you know take people that that do appreciate it and what have you but you know it's not for everyone hunting's not for everyone fishing's not for everyone you know specifically coos deer is not for everyone uh but i will say it's it's um got a place that's deep in my heart and i love those little buggers and uh, i hope <laughs> to never have to miss a coos deer season for sure well, you know what? That just means more coos deer for us, right? If people don't want to hunt them. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's awesome. So what's, uh, what's the typical kind of behavior throughout the day for coos deer as far as, you know, is it is it similar to something like elk where, you know, they feed uh, feed and drink early in the, like through the night or early in the morning, late in the evening? and then try and find a spot to bed midday? Uh, is that pretty standard kind of behavior? I mean, if you're taking out of the equation temperature, you're taking out of the equation moon, you're taking out of the equation, you know, rut cycle and what have you, they're like anything else. You know, they want to eat and they want to sleep, they want to drink and they want to, you know, live comfortably. They they, they don't want to get chased by lions. Uh, specifically, coos deer typically are going to be on the sunny side of the hills in the morning when it first comes up. They're thin-skinned, so they need as much warmth as they can. Uh, You need to watch that if you are hunting in January and we have some of, you know, a cold snap that comes through, a lot of times they won't get up out of their bed until 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, That's a little bit different than Midwest white-tailed deer where, uh, you know, you've got situations where, you know, the colder the better and the more they're on their feet coos deer are actually thin skinned and uh they they will actually conserve energy by laying and being bedded and then once that sun has come up and it's warmed up enough they'll actually stand in the sun and try and warm their bodies um but you know they're they're like anything else they're going to try and fill their bellies up and then they're going to try and stay alive and a lot of that means that they have to you know 
surprisingly, sometimes they bed right in the open where they can see, you know, if there's a lot of lions work in some country, they like to get where they can bed right in the open and they can look in every direction. You know, a lot of times they'll bed with their buddies, you know, two or three, four other bucks and everyone's looking in a different direction. And, you know, at the drop of a hat, they could be up, you know, jumped up and running at full sprint, um, you know, cause that they're, they're being chased every day by predators. Um, but you know, day in and day out, let's say a January hunt, as it warms throughout the day, typically they're going to go find shade. So they're going to be up on ridge tops and areas where they can be on the sunny side and then, you know, walk 50 to 100 yards and all of a sudden they're on the, the thick side. And so finding those contour breaks and those areas where they get sun and they get shade with a very little movement, that's usually a good tip that people can take to find more deer. And, you know, they can become nocturnal when the, when the moon is, is really high, uh, or excuse me, really full, uh, they can, you know, feed and then they lay up, uh, you know, for the first two, three, four, five hours in the morning, they lay up. And then sometimes right during midday, sometimes when it's the hottest and you wouldn't think anything would be up, they're up feeding and then they're back down. So I like hunting coos deer, uh, the most when it's darker moons. I don't like to hunt them as much in the full moon period. So, you know, you, you have to watch that. You, your, your deer sightings will go down. If, if you're kind of a sun up to nine o'clock blaster and then you go back to camp and then you come back out at, you know, four o'clock to dark, if you're hunting during a, a full moon or a bright moon, you're going to see less deer. You're best off during a full moon to glass from 11 to two o'clock and you'll probably see more deer during a full moon right during the day. Now, a dark moon, uh, you know, best times are probably going to be from sunup till about 10 o'clock in the morning. And then it's going to be from about, you know, two hours before the sun goes down. So morning and afternoon. So what, uh, what kind of difference in behavior are we going to see moving from more early in the season into, into that January rut that you were talking about? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you can pick the, you know, if I had to say a 10 day window and this goes just a blanket across Arizona for the most, the best running, I would say it's probably somewhere from the 10th to the 20th uh, of January. Um, obviously you have to take that, uh, you know, where I was talking about before the further North you are, it might be five days earlier, further South, it might be five days later for us down in Sonora, Mexico you know, that, that 15th through the 25th, that window is, is the best time. But to answer your question, like pre-rut, like after Christmas, early January, you're going to see, you know, bucks on the move. And one of the challenging, we do hunts in Sonora, Mexico after Christmas, around that Christmas time. And, and you typically can see quite a few bucks. Usually they're kind of on their own and they're moving. And, you know, you may see a big giant buck and he's just walking, 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 and he never stops. Whereas in the peak of the rut, they get a little bit more where they're with does and chasing actual does around on a hillside. So you've got quite a bit of commotion when you're glassing in your binoculars and you're catching does, you know, flagging and, and, you know, raising their tail and running off and trotting. Just keep watching. All of a sudden a buck comes out of the brush. Um, whereas, you know, around Christmas time, you might just catch a lone buck and he's just walking and he goes, you know, in your life and out of your life <laughs> in, in, you know, five minutes and you never find him again. Cause he's just on a rut walk. 
and he's just going either from where he spent, you know, 11 months out of the year, they spend in a certain amount of country. And then that month period of the rut, they typically leave and go to an area where they like to rut. Not always. Some bucks rut right where they live their whole life. Uh, coos deer in general are very habitual and they're very small home range. Uh, but uh, Richard Ockenfeld's uh, Arizona Game of Fish did a study, this is probably 20 years ago, and showed um, they did collared some deer and what have you. And it, it, you know, it showed that deer live 11 months out of the year. Most coos deer live you know, within an 800-yard uh, circle. And once the rut hits, those bucks you know, could go 5, 10, 15 miles away. Um, and so you have to keep in mind that that Christmas time, you know, late December, early January, you could just get bucks just traveling. And then once they kind of find those and they get in their area where they want to rut, then they become a little bit more centralized and you can kind of find a buck that's rutting. Um, but with that being said, sometimes they check those does and either those does are not all, you know, in or, or what have you, or they already breed those does and they move on to find other does. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, definitely kind of a complex issue, but I would try and be in Arizona during the peak of the rut when they're chasing and, and, um, uh, you know, rutting the most. Uh, specifically talking about these late season hunts, um, what, uh, you know, I'm used to, I'm kind of used to more preparing for thick timber and, and, going in chasing elk usually they're where I you know where I was going in Idaho there's always plenty of water what uh what kind of differences what kind of equipment uh is a little more critical for say one of these late season for me that that's that's easy to answer Sam um I'm a firm believer of using a pair of binoculars on a tripod I would even tell you that if you're going to come cooster hunt with me and you don't bring a tripod like don't even come it's that important to me that you have a tripod. If you do not glass for coos deer with the, with with if you're not using a tripod, you are going to see uh, 10% of the deer that I'm going to see where I'm sitting stationary on a tripod. I'm going to see 90% more deer than you are. I don't care if you are a good glasser. You cannot handhold effectively and glass coos deer. You will miss tons and tons of deer. So you. People listening, you have to have a tripod if you're coming to Arizona to hunt Tuesday, period. I would rather you have that than a release on your bow. Like, you have <laughs> to have a tripod. Now, I'm going to say that 10 power binoculars are a minimum. 12s are great. Love the Swarovski 15. You know, a lot of us Arizona guys use a lot of the big binoculars, whether it be the Koas or the Swarovski BTX or you know, I like the Swarovski, you know, the twin spotting scopes where I can be up on those cone knobs that we were talking about or up on those ridge lines. And sometimes I'm looking anywhere from, you know, three to 400 yards and I'm looking out to three or four or five miles. Mm -hmm. And with the sun at your back and in certain situations, you know, I can spot a buck out there in mountain ranges that, you know, like a lot of times Dar will be like, why are you even looking over there? That's not even in our unit. Like you're looking at, <laughs> you know, and it completely like, we're going to have to get in the truck and drive for an hour, you know, that type of thing to get over there. But I, you have to have a tripod and you have to have good binoculars in order to be effective as a cooster hunter, because like we said, they are small uh, and they do blend in very well. So having a tripod uh, is, is mandatory. 
And then having, uh, I like the outdoorsman's uh, mounting system where they can mount your binoculars to the tripod so that your binoculars are sturdy and they're not wobbling. If you have mm-hmm. any wobble or any shake or vibration, you are going to miss deer. So once, once you sit on your butt, once you're behind a tripod, you're looking through your binoculars. Um, you know, I recommend a 15 power. I love the Swaros. I love the Swarovski binoculars. Uh, and just glass your, just glass until you can't glass anymore and then glass some more <laughs> and, you know, just sit and sit and sit and glass and glass and glass. And then, you know, move over to another point, sit there for an hour or two and glass. There's some points I'll sit all day from sun up to sundown in one spot and glass. And then there'll be times when maybe I pack up my backpack and I hike over a mile and get on another point and just 360 glass in every direction. Um, and then the next thing comes with a spotting scope. Once you find a buck, sometimes when they're far enough away, like, uh, and when you get to where you've shot a bunch of coos deer, you want to be able to be able to nitpick them and look at them and, you know, decipher and decide what they are. And that's when a good, good spotting scope, I use the Swarovski 95 millimeter. It's got the 30 to 70 eyepiece, And, you know, I can, I can really zoom that thing in and, um, tell you what kind of buck we're looking at. Um, but hundred percent, if you don't have a spine scope, that's okay, but you have to have a good set of binoculars, uh, at least 10 power and a tripod. So would you recommend then, uh, if you, if you have both, you know, I've got, I've got some, some binoculars and then I've got a, a decent spotting scope. Um, would you recommend bringing both and starting with the binoculars, then just using the spotting scope to, to get in a little bit closer, like you said, nitpick, uh, you know, say you're concerned about weight. Yeah. I would never use a spotting scope to just sit up on a point and glass around. I'm always glassing with both eyes. And then I'm always using a spotting scope to just identify what I found with my binoculars. I'm not, I'm saying this is what works for me and I'm very adamant about it. If, if your plan is to go up and just kind of handhold your binoculars and then just you know, scan around with your spotting scope, that is a no-no for me. (laughs) I would rather see you just take your 15 power or just your 10 powers and look with both eyes and look steady and be scanning around slowly, methodically picking apart the country. Then, oh yeah, I get up to the point and then I just one eye it up there with the spotting scope. You cannot look through one eye for very long effectively for coos deer. So I use the spotting scope for identifying whether it's a buck that I want to go after or not, or even more elementary than that, I identify, is it a buck or is it a doe? And I tell people, if you're looking through 15 power binoculars, especially Swarovski's, uh, and you know, you, so you're, you're sitting behind 15s and you're looking, you know, out to two miles with 15s, you will be able to tell whether it's a buck or not. If you can't tell if it's a buck, it's, it's probably a spike. Um, those binoculars are so good that you should be able to determine if it's a pretty good buck, but then the spotting scope, that's when you come and you're like, okay, how big of a buck is it? How long is each point? Okay. You know, what type of buck is it a 70, 80, 90, 100, 110? What is that buck? So, uh, talking about glassing, you know, as you're, you know, as you're scanning through, I know everyone kind of has their own different methods for, for glassing a ridge or whatever that may be, whether they're gridding it or going in rows. Um, 
do you have any, you know, what, maybe what's the method that you use when you're glassing? And then with that, do you have any tips, you know, other than obviously just kind of having a trained eye for it? Are there any tips you can give for being able to, to pick out those details when you're looking? Yeah. The, the biggest thing is you've got to glass methodically. You've got to glass slow. Whenever I'm not seeing deer, I tell myself, slow down. And usually very, very quickly after I say slow down, I find deer. Darn, I have gotten to be very efficient, very good glassers, and we can find stuff very, very quickly. And we, 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 a lot of people watch us glass and they think we glass very, very fast, which we do at times. But then there's also times when we slow down and we pick apart every little bush and just sit there and let your eyes focus on that bush and just look for any movement and then just barely move your tripod, you know, your, your, your tripod head and your finos move to the next bush. And you're just letting your eyes swim around and you're looking for anything that's going to stick out, whether it's a you know piece of antler, whether it's an ear, whether it's a black nose, whether it's the cinnamon tail, you know, whether it's the dark spots on their, you know, scent glands on the backs of their legs or the white on the inside of their legs, you get to where you pick out those things that I would give from a, from kind of a, a beginner standpoint, slow down. Um, now, I will tell you at sun up and when the sun is going down, you want to be scanning just back and forth, open areas, thick areas, just back and forth. Um, there's always been this thing, you know, you want to use a method, a grid. I'm not much into the grid. Uh, I think the grid has actually slowed a lot of people down. I think they've actually not found as many deer as they should have. I think when the sun is coming up, you need to be very active and, and panning. I start usually at the top of the hill and I pan back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, like I'm sweeping it with a paintbrush. Okay. Mm -hmm. Once I covered that, I move over to the next little piece of country. I sweep it with a paintbrush. I usually always start at the top and go back, you know, left to right, right to left, right, you know, just back and forth, back and forth, all the way down. Then I move up. Um, and then as the sun gets higher, as it's 8, 9, 10, 11 o'clock, then I slow down, and then I start focusing on shadows. And I start staring into the shadows, and I'm looking for deer that are bedded. So I'm looking for the shape of the deer's ears out, and I'm looking for, you know, their head. I'm looking for that black nose. I'm looking for you know, characteristics of a deer standing in the shade and feeding. Um, so I go from a very fast glasser, glassing lots of open saddles, open areas to then focusing and slowing way down and, and going methodically. I think if you go methodically and do too much of a grid at first light, you're going to cover so little country that you're not going to catch that buck that's just topping through a saddle, you know, or a doe that's being chased by a buck that's, you know, like, two to five, 10 degrees off to the right. Cause you're just doing this, you know, grid. I, I more think of it as a paintbrush and just paint the hill, move to the next one, start at the top, paint the next hill. And, and, and then as the morning progresses, slow down. Well, you know, that makes a lot of sense because in those, in those mornings and evenings when you're, you're a little bit limited by the, by how the light's changing, you're limited by the time they're going to be moving. And because they are moving, you're you're more likely to catch them when you have a broader stroke, if you will, 
Um, versus, you know, you have that broad strokes when they're bedded, it's not going to, you're not as likely to see them. Yeah. You'll miss them when you're bedded. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, think of it as like a net, you're casting a broad net or you're casting, you know, a small net. Um, there's, there's times for both, but definitely uh, I'm not a fan of the grid, uh, at first and last light. I'm a fan of just, you know, sweeping. Now I thoroughly hit all of the country. You don't want to leave spots that you don't hit but you want to hit them fairly quickly, scan back and forth, back and forth, and just keep moving. Um, I found that to be very, very effective. And now, kind of your point now, um, you almost want to be focusing in when when you're really getting into those details, you know, during those times when they'll be bedded more likely, you're looking more for characteristics. You're not looking in your mind expecting to see, look, 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 oh, there's a deer. A whole deer. You're, right. you're looking like, oh, there's like a, there's like a hoof or uh, there's a, you know, there's an ear tip. Yeah. I'm looking for that black nose. It's, it's amazing how you catch an ear flick, you know? So to answer your question, when, when it, when I'm slowing down and it's, you know, more, you know, looking into the shadows, I'm looking for any movement. A lot of times I pick up a bird, I pick up a rabbit. I'm like, there's nope, that's a rabbit. <laughs> any little movement. So my eyes are, I'm, I'm for one, you got to kind of shade your, your eyes, put a shirt over your head and just, you got to get into your glasses and you, you know, you don't need to be talking. You need to be focused. You need to be looking for any little flick or any little movement. You're, you'll, you're pick up, you know, a little bit of wind blowing. You'll think, Oh, that's a deer. Nope. It's just a little branch but you get kind of into it and, um, you know, get your eyes covered where you're totally into your binoculars, where you don't have glare coming in. And, uh, you know, you'll, in one day you'll start, you know, knowing as soon as you see your first deer, you're like, okay, that's what a deer looks like. Okay. That's what a coos deer looks like. Okay. That's a coos deer doe. That's a coos deer buck. Okay. I kind of got the size down. I kind of got the shape down. I kind of got the color down. And, and, you know, the more you see, the better you'll get at picking stuff out. So you're out there, you, uh, you glass up your first deer, um, you know, or you glass up your, your 80th deer for, for that trip. But you see, you see that buck that you really want to go after. Um, and you're like, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to, I'm going to hunt this sucker down. He's mine. Uh, what, what challenges uh, would you say with a spot and stock situation with coos uh, would you face that might be different from from maybe muleys or elk or other animals? As you're, the biggest thing is as you're stocking in on the animal, you can't see them. So like an elk or a mule deer that have a much bigger body, a lot of times you can move in on them and be, you know, as you're moving, pull up your binoculars. Yep, he's still there. Yep, he's still there. Yep, he's still there. Most of the time with the coos deer, they're so small, you can't see them. So here, here's a few tips. I'm a big observer. I'm watching, watching, watching. I find a buck that I want to shoot. I don't do anything. I sit there and usually watch them for at least a good hour. What is that buck doing? Is he about to bed down? Is he walking? Is he, is he slowing down? Is he about to leave? You know, does he have does? Is he by himself? I'm taking in as much information as I can. Now, you in my opinion, when coos deer are on their feet, that is not the time to be stalking. The time to be stalking is when they're bedded, because usually once they bed, they'll hold there for quite a while, and they'll hole up. So 
if you're hunting by yourself, it can be extremely difficult and extremely frustrating because, you know, we're talking kind of big country. And by the time you get over to the deer that you're trying to stalk, he's gone. Or you walk right up 10 yards from him. You don't need, you're thinking, oh, he's gone. All of a sudden he jumps up. He was there the whole time. So if you can hunt these deer with a partner, I highly recommend it. I always say, if you find a buck you want to kill, do not take your eyes off the buck. When you're hunting by yourself, there's no way to do that. Okay. So what I would do if I'm hunting by myself is I would watch the deer and watch him bed down, wait till it gets warm. And you're convinced that that's where he's bedded, going to bed for a couple of hours, which is usually the case during the middle of the day. Now they may get up once or twice during the day and reposition with the shade or what have you, or feed for just a minute and bed back down. But typically they're kind of moving around in the morning and then for two or three, four hours during the day, they're kind of bedded up. So if you're by yourself, I'm going to be looking at landmarks, trees, rocks, you know, colored trees, forked trees, dead trees, anything that once I get over there, it all changes once you leave that spot. So you have to actually pinpoint, take a picture with your phone. The deer is right here. If you have a buddy, that's where you can become extremely effective, whether you're going to use hand signals or radios or texting or whatever you're going to use. And, that, you know, communication during hunting is a whole nother subject. But if, you, if, you're, if you're hunting with a buddy, I highly encourage you to put your buddy down, put him behind the tripod. And anyone that hunts with me, they know this. If you put me on a buck and you're going to go stock it, I will not take my eye off that deer ever. And that's why Dar and I work so well as hunting and guiding partners is I know that if he's watching a buck for me and I'm either stalking or moving over with the client, I know that if that deer even so much as moves, Dar's going to see it. So you have to have a hunting partner that's totally committed to your best interest. Not, oh, I had to take a leak or, oh, I had to get something out of my pack or, oh, I had to take a little nap and I'm tired or whatever. It doesn't work. If you want to become effective at efficient at killing these deer never take your eyes off a buck you want to kill if you want to kill that buck you cannot take your eyes off it if your buddy is sitting there watching whether he's giving you hand signals or you have you know the the orange hat means he's up or whatever it may be or you have a radio and he says the buck is up you have to have someone that's totally committed to the whole day doesn't matter if rain hail what comes that deer is going to be in those binos the entire time. And if you can do that, your level of efficiency goes way up being able to get pretty close to that deer and be able to harvest them. So do you have any, uh, any favorite stories or, or favorite moments from, uh, from a stock on a, on a coos buck? You know, I would say darn, I've had so many, so many great hunts over the last 20 years, um, chasing these deer. Um, you know, we had, had one of our, a long time ago, um, our backs are never the same. We did a big backpack hunt, um, back in some really, really rough country and Dar had gone in there a couple weeks beforehand scouting and found this buck that he thought was like 105 inch buck. But one of the things that was really cool is it was a really wide deer. I want to say it was close to 19 or 20 inches wide. And we went back in there, Dar had a general season tag and we packed in there and 
looked and looked for that deer and that deer had just moved a little bit and we ended up hiking up on the ridge the deer was on and I ended up glassing him up off the other side and and uh, Dar was able to get down there and he made a great stock that evening and and um got the deer killed and 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 that was a it was like a 105 inch deer and then we nearly broke our backs coming out of there and, and what have you because the country was really really rough that was a fun time and then you know there's been a bunch of um big deer that we've killed together you know one of my biggest regrets in my coos deer is you know the biggest deer i've ever killed myself dar wasn't with me we hunted in mexico for a buck and hunted him for a full week and and never saw him uh we only saw a few deer it was a very low density area and and i was able to go back uh, a week later uh by myself and um dar wasn't with me um and had had a couple mexican guys from the ranch with me and what have you and so one of the regrets is the biggest deer i've ever killed dar wasn't with me but uh we've had so many so many great encounters and you know as good as arizona is you know i know this podcast about over the counter deer hunting in arizona we've had some unbelievable adventures in uh sonora mexico which for me is a whole um another level of the difference in Mexico and Arizona is you just see a lot more bucks and um, you're hunting uh, these big ranches uh, and it's not public land, it's private land, but you're, you're, you're in these, what I would call deer sanctuaries where, you know, nobody's messing with the deer and, and you don't have some of the struggles that you have with some of the public land hunting. Um, and, and you get to hunt and see more bucks. Um, that's one benefit to Mexico, but I'm just trying to think if there's any, uh, we've just been on so many great bucks. Um, and we, you know, one thing, it's always great to have a, a hunting partner that's totally committed and Dar and I work together. We truly are more happy for the other person. And we've gotten in some severe arguments over who's going to shoot a buck. He'll find a buck and say, here's a buck for you. And I say, I'm not shooting it. I'm not shooting it back and forth. You're going <laughs> to shoot it. No, I'm not going to shoot it. Um, so if you can ever get to a point where you find a hunting partner, that's more happy for you. If you shoot something big, um, that's, that's truly a place that, uh, that I love, uh, you know, the, having a hunting partner, which you can enjoy that kind of success because, you know, we come home on a lot of hunts empty handed where we're hunting for a certain buck. And, you know, if that buck doesn't present itself, we, we go home without one. And, you know, you've got to have someone that's committed to, uh, you know, to the hunt for sure. So is there any other maybe pieces of gear or any other little tips and tricks that we may not have covered that you think are, uh, would be useful or critical for someone, uh, going out on their first, uh, coos hunt to know? You know, I would say for sure, have a good pair of boots. Um, you know, keep your feet. It's a lot like sheep hunting. You know, there's a lot of rough country. There's a lot of rocks that are, you know, unstable terrain and what have you. And there's a lot of thorns and stuff. So, you know, ha have a good pair of boots, um, good pair of binoculars, great backpacks. You know, there's so, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Kuyu and use a lot of their products. Um, have, you know, the lightest weight gear you can have and, and layer up because you're going from, you know, say 20s, you know, thirties in the morning to, you know, maybe 70 during the day. So make sure you're layering, um, and, you know, backpacking for twos. I always tell people try and on these general rifle seasons, I tell people, you know, get a mile away from the road and you're going to find more bucks, uh, in those over the counter January hunts. Sometimes that's not necessarily the truth because 
a lot of the does are close to the water. A lot of the water's close to the roads because they, you know, they built tanks and, and, um, you know, water sources and, you know, the bucks come to the does. So that's not as important, uh, in January. Uh, but, uh, you know, good equipment Buy as good equipment as you can afford. Uh, you know, I've had binoculars for 10, 12, 15 years. I try and buy Swarovski. I'm, I'm a firm believer, uh, of Swarovski binoculars. Um, try and buy high quality, something that's going to last you a long time. I'd rather spend more money on something than to buy a new set every other year because they're breaking or the quality isn't as good. I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, good boots, good backpack, uh, you know, lightweight stuff and try and do some backpacking if you can. That's always uh, fun to, you know, sleep on a ridge and get up right from your tent and be glass and two steer right out of your tent. It's always a great time. Well, you know, there there is one thing you mentioned that I think definitely warrants just reiteration is I feel like in Arizona, you're probably going to run into a wider, wider temperature extremes throughout the day, yeah. Uh, especially in the winter. So uh, like you said, layering is really important, you know, being prepared to be able to pull off that hood or hat or whatever you're wearing and, and shed some of that heat or, you know, whether it's whether it's your jackets, your base layer, like however you need to do it. Um, it's not some of this, this high country and the Rockies where you're, you know, where you're going from, from thirties to fifties throughout the day. It's, it's going to be a lot wider of a, of a temperature extreme. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you're twenties to seventies usually. And so, you know, you have to have, you know, I wear the, the um, Kuyu super down jacket um, while I'm glassing the super down pants have them with me. And then during the middle of the day, you would can't even believe that you had your super down on or your <laughs> super down pants. And then, you know, the sun starts to go down and you get that last bit of glassing till dark and you're sitting there freezing your butt off and then you put your super down back, you know? So it's, it's like, there is a huge uh, temperature range, but I'm a firm believer in buying the best gear that you can afford. Um, there's a reason most of the gear is fairly expensive because it's good stuff and, you know, they use high quality materials. If you just go venturing out into the cooster woods with a bunch of cotton, you know, stuff that you got at Walmart, I mean, you're going to get cold. And if you add any bit of, you know, rain or, or, you know, snow or sleet, I mean, you're going to risk hypothermia and some of those different things. So, um, there's a lot of great companies out there. I'm a firm believer in Kuyu and, and their ultralight uh, hunting gear, uh, and you know, having a good pair of pants, you know, you bust through quite a bit of brush and what have you. Um, you know, you get that cheap stuff; it, it's going to tear, it's going to rip. Uh, and um, yeah, it's just I want to encourage everyone out there: definitely come to Arizona, bring your bow, come out and experience the coos deer rut. And the other thing is the mule deer are rutting at the same time. Um, so, you know, you hear of the Arizona strip and the mule deer rutting in November and on the Kaibab, which is true. They rut in November, but the rest of the state, our deer rut in the end of December and January. So you can hunt coos deer and mule deer with your bow at the same time. Mule deer are typically a little bit lower in elevation, but you can be hunting in those same areas where you're seeing coos and muleys and, you know, take your pick, whether you're stalking a muley or a coos. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenal time to be in the state of Arizona. Well, and you know, like we said, that just gives a new hunter so many more opportunities. You know, someone that may not, they may just be looking for anything, whether, you know, whether it's a, a doe or a buck 
or you know just anything maybe with with antlers or you know it gives you a lot more opportunities you probably get a lot more action you know you have great opportunities like we talked about to uh to throw in some other animals too so i you know i think this is i'm really this is one hunt that i'm i'm really glad i learned about and i really think a lot of uh new hunters would would find valuable yeah and bring your shotgun shoot some quail while you're at it (laughs) so as we're winding down i always like to end with a little bit of advice so you know as we mentioned earlier uh this podcast is directed at, at folks that are new to hunting, getting into it, or possibly from the city and may not have access to a lot of the resources uh, other folks have and just possibly may feel intimidated by by going on their first hunt or getting started in hunting. What, uh, what kind of words of advice might you give that person? First and foremost, enjoy it. Try and set yourself, set your hunt up to be as enjoyable as possible. Um, don't try and put so much pressure on yourself that it, that, that if you get a deer, it's success. And if you don't get a deer, it's not success. Enjoy the whole process. We were talking about Google earth. We're talking about, you know, gear prep. We're talking about all that stuff. Enjoy everything about it. And then don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, if you want to send me an email and ask me questions, or if you want to send Sam an email and ask him questions, like we've all started from somewhere. Don't be intimidated by you know, oh, it's, I shot a buck and it's just a two point and everyone's going to think it's a dink or whatever. Like everybody has their own level of, you know, success or what they should shoot as a trophy. You know, just quit worrying about what everybody else is thinking. Just focus on enjoying the process. And if you can do that, a lot of times you really get into uh, the hunt, everything about the hunt. And for me, the older I get, the more I enjoy the whole process and and just the thrill of the hunt. And I'm, I'm excited to get up in the morning and, you know, I'm as excited now as I was when I started, like I'm probably even more into it. And, uh, it's not about the end result. It's not about, you know, killing a 105 inch buck or 110 inch buck or a hundred inch buck. It's about going out and enjoying God's creation and going out and, you know, pushing yourself physically and, and mentally, and when it gets tough, being able to just sit there and say, you know what, I glassed all day, and I finally found that buck. And for me, that's what it's all about. Like, you can sit there, and the sun is just beating on you, and you, you know, your part of you is just saying, Let's, I should just get out of here. I should just, you know, I should just leave. And then you just stick it out, and boom, that buck flicks his ear, and you've got the buck, and, you know, it's a big, giant buck, and it's the one you're after. So, I mean, um, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, that uh, just enjoy the hunt. Um. So, where if people wanted to reach out, uh, what's the best place to find the podcast? Uh, see the content you're putting out online. JScottOutdoors.com is my website. Uh, I'm pretty active on Instagram. JScottOutdoors on Instagram, also on Facebook. You know, come check out the podcast. Uh, you can. Uh, Find it through iTunes, J. Scott Outdoors Podcast, or on my website. And uh, feel free to send me a direct message on Instagram or send me an email at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer any questions that you guys might have about any Western hunting. Fantastic. And I'll make sure to post up links to all those on our show notes page. That's going to be livingcountryinthecity.com slash 41. Um. Thank you so much for hopping on, Jay. I know you've uh, you've had a busy day out hunting this morning. Uh, what what uh, what are you out chasing today? 
Uh, elk. I'm actually in Colorado. Um, I actually, a friend of mine bought a ranch here in Colorado and I'm helping him take inventory on the ranch and actually kind of the hunt manager of this property. And so it's a 40,000 acre ranch. And so actually I'm, um, headed out right now, uh, to go scout for elk. So, um, yeah, I'm just uh, right in the middle of it for sure. <laughs> well, I appreciate you, uh, taking the time away from scouting and hopping on. So thank you so much again. All right, buddy. Sounds good. Uh, God bless you, okay? All right, y'all. That'll do it for episode 41 of Living Country in the City. Make sure you check out the Jay Scott Outdoor Show and give Jay a follow on socials. You can find all of those links on our show notes page at livingcountryinthecity.com slash 41. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on any episodes and leave us a quick rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. But in the meantime, keep it country, y'all. Thank y'all for listening to Living Country in the City. Get show notes and check out the blog, product reviews, events, and more at livingcountryinthecity.com.